We have been out of the book of 1 Timothy for some while now as we walked through the identity series together and then we had the Lord's Supper last week. And as we return to 1 Timothy, maybe you are like so many who have a hard time kind of keeping track of what you ate for breakfast yesterday and so you need a refresher. You need us to take a few moments and to kind of summarize what we've done so far. And so we're going to take a couple of minutes and do that. But this morning as we walk through this passage... Uh, Paul is, in the near view, certainly reflecting on those things that Timothy needs to do. He's taking, taking a moment and he's saying, look, don't be, <clears throat> don't be beat down by certain things. Don't let this get to you. This is your job. This is what you stick to. And so on the one hand, it's, it's, it's really uh, to me this morning. So as I reflected on these things, I just thought, well, man, this is, I'm just going to go stand alone in the bathroom, look in the mirror, and walk back and forth and point a lot. And it's going to be highly uplifting to me. But on the other hand, there are things in there we see that the reflection the church should take as we see, as Paul describes, what is the ministry of the Word. And so as we walk through this together, be thinking about uh, what the ministry of the Word is and, and how that should be reflected even in your lives. Now we are closing out the fourth chapter of 1 Timothy today. But you'll remember that as the fourth chapter is open, Paul is addressing a number of things that are going wrong there in Ephesus. There are some, some errant, some bad teaching. It's not just boring. It's not just uncomfortable. It's not, you know, just not the, not, not the glitziest or most well-put teaching you've ever heard. But it is just, at its base, wrong. It's, it's bankrupt. It's heresy. It's false teaching. And they're espousing different things, like you need to forbid marriage, you need to not eat in certain things, and, and Paul writes to Timothy and he says, look, put this before the brethren. Show them what the Word of God says in contradiction to what is being told them by even some in the assembly. Show them how the things that they're being told, the things that they're being called to believe in, don't accord with sound doctrine. They don't, they don't go well together. Put this before the brothers. And then, then some in the group had also prized too highly physical fitness. They, they'd said that, you know, perfection of this body is, is really one of the things you need to head towards if you want to be spiritually complete. That's when Paul wrote and he said that physical fitness is of some good, but godliness is profitable in every way. Well, let me read for us the passage that we're going to focus on this morning 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Paul writes, and he says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which you were given by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that they all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. By doing so, you will save both yourselves, both yourself and your hearers. So as Paul writes, he's, <clears throat> he's calling uh, this guy Timothy who is... It's perceived over and over again, and you can kind of pick up on some of the nuanced responses to this, that there's this understanding that Timothy was timid. 
that Timothy was a little bit nervous or just unsure in his delivery, in his, his response to the things that he saw. But you can kind of see that. I mean, you can understand how this would have come about. Timothy is, he's, he's not, he's not an, an Ephesian native. He's not native to Ephesus. He didn't, he didn't grow up there. It's not that he had family there. That they, when Timothy came to town, he said, oh, young Timothy, we remember you. Remember when you lit the guy's house on fire? That was not a good thing. We understand you're different now. Um, it's, it's not that they knew Timothy from when he was younger, but Paul has inserted Timothy into this town. He's inserted this, this young man, is what the text refers to him, in the midst of this thing, in some sense, to sort out all the junk that's going on. Now, I get this, right? I, I, in some ways, I resonate with what Timothy's going through. You know, one of the things you probably heard as I read this passage is, don't let anybody despise you because of youth. This is something I hear each and every week. Not the despising part, but just the you're so young thing. Um... I mean, frequently I'll be in the hall and somebody says, hey, can you show me to where the pastor is? And I'm like, that's an easy one. I can do that. And they're like, well, where is he? I'm like, well, he's right here. Yeah, yeah, where's the senior pastor? Well, no, no, one and the same. They're like, well, where's the senior, senior pastor? I was like, what you, I don't, you've lost me. I don't, now you've asked me to do something I'm not able to do. I was at something a couple of weeks ago and I had spoken to this woman on the phone a number of times and I showed up and she said, oh, you're just a baby. <clears throat> And I said, man, that, that voice deepening thing on my phone works well. It's the in-person thing I struggle with. Um, but yeah, and so the youth thing I get, okay? And so as we walk through that, we'll talk about that some. But Paul writes, and what he tells him is, look, don't be timid. Don't be timid. He says, command and teach these things. I mean, timidity stands there and says, hey, look, these are really good things, you know, Godliness is really what you want to do, but I understand you want to look like Adonis. That's a good thing, too. That's a good thing, too. CrossFit is a good thing, too. Okay, yeah, you want to do Slim for Life. That's a good thing, too. If you, if, if you, get, if you get time, I realize you wake up at 4.30 in the morning to go to CrossFit, and all your meals are perfectly scheduled to, to coincide with a perfectly reflective metabolism to get you down to less than 5% body fat because you want to be at .253 by the time you go to Mr. Universe Fitness in six, 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 six and a half months. That's right, okay, yeah. But if you can somehow manage to fit in godliness to this, that would be better for you. Okay, that's what timidity does. But Paul writes to him, and he says, no, you stand in there, you open up the Word of God, and you say, cut it out. Man, this is what you need to do. This is how your life can be found in accordance with godliness. You want to do this other stuff, that's great. That's good for you. You don't want your heart to explode because of all the cholesterol pumping through your veins from eating french fries, and I love french fries. Then do this. Pursue godliness, because this thing matters for eternity. Your body's going to decay. It's going to get older. As my brother-in-law told me, after you hit 30, things start going downhill. A week after I hit 30, I'd, I'd, I hurt my knee, which led to knee surgery. Apparently, my, brother's a pro- my brother-in-law is a prophet, right? It, it, it breaks. It gives out. But godliness is of value in every way. So he goes on. He says, command and teach these things. He's reflecting back on those things that were said in the text. Don't pay attention to endless genealogies and silly myths. Don't, don't pay attention to old wives' tales and, and this heightened sense of morality. Right? Pay attention to the Bible and what it says. In the South especially, we have this real difficulty where we have imported godly 
sounding things into our culture. And they sound so right and, and so true. And we find ourselves pursuing this cultural perspective on godliness. And when it comes to the Bible, we're just like, well, you know, that's, it's good. I read it certainly on Sunday mornings, but it's just not as palatable. It's not as easy to digest. Because the Bible, one of the things it tells us over and over again is that, that God allows suffering in our lives for our godliness. He allows difficult things to happen in our lives so that we can be made holy. And that's really hard to fit on a bumper sticker. Paul calls Timothy to an engagement in the Word of God to instruct the flock there in Ephesus with the Word of God. And then he says in verse 12, he says, Look, Tim, don't let anybody despise you for your youth. Now, the question is, how old is Timothy? He's not 16, he's not 17. Timothy's likely somewhere south of 40 because in the, in the culture that Paul wrote to, they considered anybody under 40 to be young. Now, those of you who are 39 or 40 are saying, yes, let's bring that back. I mean, I've been telling my kids for months, dad's hip, mom's hip. I'm, I'm 40, I'm young. I got like plenty of life ahead of me, I'm young. That's what they thought. We can bring that back. I mean, 40 is the new 15. He says, don't let anybody despise you. Don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. This is what the type of behavior they were engaged in. They heard Timothy step into the midst. Paul knew this was going to happen. Timothy stepped in the middle of it, and he said, look, you elders, you're doing things wrong. You're not paying attention strictly to the Word of God. You're being too heavily influenced by your culture. You're being too heavily influenced by creating a palatable Christian message because you want not to offend people. And so Timothy is this probably 33, 32-year-old guy stepping in the midst of this church that he wasn't a part of the planning, this church that he wasn't a part of growing up in this community. He doesn't know what it is to live in this community, to be raised in this community. And he steps in with the Word of God and he says, stop it. Find your life in accordance with the Word of God, not what your culture, not what your community tells you it should look like. And they hated him for it. They looked down on him for it. And in some sense, it was easier for them to look at him and say, well, he's just young. Probably give that kid a water pistol and he would ask which way hell is so he could charge it. He's just overzealous. Give him the seasoning that comes with living here in Ephesus for a while. Paul writes him. He says, don't let anybody look at you and, and judge you on the basis of your age. But instead, huh, instead, this is what you need to do. Now, honestly, when I read through this, I kind of thought that Paul would say, this is what you need to do. Go show them all the 50 different ways they're wrong right? And so somebody looks down on your age, go walk up to them, show them your birth certificate and say, actually I was born this year, these are all the accomplishments I've had in my life, these are all the things I know that you don't know and this is why you need to respect me. But instead Paul writes him and says, no, set an example for how they should behave. Set an example for the believers there. He says, set an example for them in speech and conduct and love, faith and impurity. I mean, this is the amazing thing. Paul recognizes that they will continue to look down on Timothy. They can't accept him solely on the basis of what he says. 
They need to see that those things that Timothy is telling them to do, those things which he is pulling out of the text and applying to their lives, are being found in his life as well. So he gives him five modifiers. He says, let these things be an example to them in speech and in conduct. So he goes to the external. He says, Timothy, as you're out and you're engaging in, in, in the life of the flock and you're meeting these people, let them hear those things you say be a reflection of the Word of God. Let them hear the wisdom that you apply to their life situation be found in accordance with the Word of God. So Timothy, when you step into the middle of a, of a family who's considering divorce, when you step in the middle of a family who has lost a child, when you step in the middle of somebody who's lost their job, when you step in the middle of all of these things and even sinful behavior, you don't come to them with, with, with platitudes. You don't come to them with niceties. You don't come to them with, you know, just worldly wisdom. You let them hear in your speech that you are a minister of the Word of God. You let them see it in your conduct, those things that you do as you engage in culture. You know, if, if Paul lived in our day, he would even boil it down and say, Timothy, it's even when you go to Walmart or go to the grocery store, you take that cart and you put it back in the slot. How hard is that? Don't leave it beside your car. We all know that that's what you want to do. But show them even in your conduct that you're giving no one an excuse to look down on you. And then he turns, he says, in love and faith and purity. He calls Timothy to love people that aren't being lovable. Right? It's not like these, when Timothy thinks of these people, he thinks of the cute, cuddly puppy who's got the you know, puppy breath and it's just... No one can hate a puppy, unless you're a cat lover and I pray for you. But no one can hate a puppy. All right, Timothy thinks of these people, and, and it's closer to thinking of a mangy dog no one wants to touch. But this is what he's called to do. He's called to love them. He's called to set an example for them of what it is to love each other. He's called to set an example to them of what it is to demonstrate an active and vibrant faith. That Timothy, even in the midst of this difficult situation, has such transformative faith working in his life that when these people are attacking him, when these people are berating him, sending him hate mail, ringing on his, his door, or, you know, all of these things, spitting in his food, whatever it is that they're doing, he returns to them love. This faith that he has has in God, this faith that he has and this trust that he has that he is exactly in the place where he is supposed to be and God is doing in him exactly that thing that he is supposed to be is not shaken. Timothy's faith is not shaken in the midst of all this difficulty and purity. Timothy is living in, in just a, an awful city. I mean, there's, there's prostitution taking place. There's all of these just, just awful, awful things happening morally. But he is found catching himself from doing these things. I read a disturbing stat this week. It was talking about just ministers and, and the difference between ministers and their congregations and the percentages of ministers that get divorced, ministers that look at pornography, ministers that engage in all these things. And it was it's terrifying. I mean, a full 50% of men and women in ministry get divorced. Man, there's, there's no discernible difference between them and the prevailing culture. 
and talked about the numbers and the percentages of ministers that, that struggle in terms of purity, either in, in having affairs or um, <clears throat> engaged in, in looking at pornography and looking at material which is a perversion of what God has, has set out and defined sexuality to be. said that there's no discernible difference between clergy and laity in that. And Paul looks at Timothy and he recognizes that he lives in a city that is just laissez le bon temps rouler. You know, let the good times roll. Do whatever you want. Feed the flesh. Feed your desires. And he says to him, you need to set an example in purity. Because in this awful city, in this sin-infested city, that will make a difference. And the same thing goes true today. Ministers need to be setting an example. I need to be setting an example in speech and conduct and love, faith, and purity. Because in doing that, I'm being a minister of the Word. And then going into verse 14, he tells Timothy, he says, look, don't neglect the gift that you have. Don't neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy, it would be easier for him just to sulk and be upset at the things people were doing to him. But the word Paul tells him is, stay true to the things you know about yourself. And so he reminds Timothy of this, this time in the past. You'll remember in Acts 16, Paul links up with Timothy. Timothy's got a, a believing mom and a, an atheist or agnostic. He's got a, a dad who's Greek, who's not a Christian. And Paul calls him in to do ministry with him. <clears throat> and then at some point later on, they gather around and they recognize that God has gifted Timothy for the ministry of the gospel. That God has come into Timothy's life, that in salvation he came alongside, he gave Timothy a gifting in teaching and in exhortation. Timothy has been set aside, in some sense, in our vernacular, for full-time vocational ministry. And Paul calls on him to remember that time. Remember, Timothy, when the elders gathered around you, when they recognized that thing that God had done in your life, they came around you and they laid hands on you and they prayed over you. Other men had also recognized this thing, that God had called Timothy, that he had gifted Timothy in teaching and preaching. And Paul wants him to understand that you need to exercise these things. Don't neglect this. Don't, don't think that this is something that God will allow you to just kind of put pause on and come back to whenever it's more convenient for you. But you need to continually engage in these things. Man, if you look at your own life and recognize those things that God has gifted you towards, maybe God has gifted you in terms of music, maybe God has gifted you in terms of administration, or God has gifted you in terms of giving or in charity or in love. And it just gets difficult, does it not? When you continue to pour yourself out, there's no word of thanks, there's no evident fruit of, of the things that you see yourself doing. And so you kind of come to the point, you're like, I'm just going to take a break for a little while. Nobody's going to notice. Nobody really seems to care anyway. So, and the thing that people say is, this just isn't the season for me to be involved right? This just isn't the season for me. I've got a lot of things going on. 
this isn't the season for me, and I think it may be hunting language that kind of works its way in, you know, as if there's, you know, there's, there's dove season, and there's ministry season, and there's deer season, you know, and, and, and ministry season's really like a two-week window, and you have to have a special stamp to do it anyway, and nobody wants to go through that class. But it's this idea that when we evaluate our time, when we evaluate all of these things, we want to say that, that this just isn't the season for me. Next season of life will be better, right? What does that look like? How do you gauge when this season begins and ends? How do you know that, that this season of life you're experiencing isn't just life? Man, it's not a season. This is just life. This is what it is to be in your 40s and have kids. This season you call that everything will be less busy later on is called after they graduate. This season that you call it'll be better when I retire is just called a lie because you've got like 30 years or 20 years. Or maybe you're in retirement and you're like, this is the greatest season and I just want to relax. You know what the next season is after retirement? It's death. I mean, there's like, there's retirement and then there's, you know, you enjoy that, but the next season is death. And really, as we look at our lives, and, and I mean, I'm 33, I'll be 34 in two days. And you can sing happy birthday in your head. But when I think of my life, I am living and the next season for me is death. I mean, that's all of us. Whether you've got young kids, you're single, or whatever it is, there is now, and then there is death. And death's a reality for all of us. But do not neglect the gift that God has given you. Don't neglect it. Don't wait for your schedule to clear out later. Don't wait for it to get easier. Service is going to cost you something. And that's, what I, that's why it's service. Service is going to cost you something. Every time you say yes to something, you have to say no to something else. Say yes to God. Don't neglect the gift. Paul writes him again, and he says, Look, Timothy, you need to practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. For what purpose? So that all may see your progress. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Look, first of all, let's make sure you're not neglecting it. Make sure you're not just putting it to the side, saying next season of life things will be better. But secondly, he says, Timothy, practice these things. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. The word that Paul uses for immerse is pretty interesting. He uses a command and just says, practice these things, be these things. He says, look, you know the things that God has gifted you towards, which for Timothy was teaching, was exhortation. He says, look, engage in that. What does that mean? It means preach. What does that mean? It means open the word of God, show how that applies to people's lives. And going one past that, he says, look, don't look, don't just walk back and forth and get really good at, at speaking to people, but be these things. Take on the very embodiment of what it means to exercise your gifting. So whatever the gifting God is calling you, whatever gifting God has given you, whatever thing he is calling you towards, friend, the word for me is to practice these things and be this thing. The word for you is to practice that gift God has given you. Exercise that gift. Find yourself in community with others using your gifts. And this is, this is beautifully displayed in the life groups that we've recently launched. That We are gathering in small group community. And so we're able to, to really clearly and quickly see the giftings that God has laid on different people. 
The giftings that he has given them for what? For the purpose of building up the body. God gifts us not so that we can make much of ourselves, but so that we can come together with others, support them in bad times, celebrate with them in good times, but so that we can advance the kingdom of God together. Amen? That was a very timid amen, but we're going to let that pass. Paul writes and tells him to practice these things, be these things. And then he comes to it at the end. And he says, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Now, this is an interesting thing. Timothy's in a, he's in a rough situation in Ephesus. He's got a church that, that really wants to look a whole lot more like its culture than Christ. He's got a church that, that's buying into some kind of age-old myths, some age-old ideas, and, and they're exercising those things. And it's not just the church, though, because if it's just a, a certain subset or group, like when we spoke about Hymenaeus and Alexander that had been ousted from the church, I mean, that's the easy thing. But this errant teaching, this bad teaching, had found its way in to the leadership of the church. And so Timothy is having to address what it is to handle issues at the top levels of, of a church administration, top levels of a church. And it's difficult. They're more visible. Everybody knows them. Everybody sees them. They're the ones, when people want to assign a name or a group of names to a church, they're the ones that they're being assigned to that church. And what Paul tells him is, is to exercise this ministry of the word. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. See, Paul recognizes that some of these other elders have, have made a shipwreck of their faith. And they've taken others down with them. Some of these other elders have really, have just really messed up. They bought into bad teaching. Maybe these guys quit exercising their gifts. Maybe these guys started listening more to their culture than the inner testimony of the Spirit as they reflected on the Word of God. And Timothy's got to continue to work in this. And so Paul tells him, look, <clears throat> keep a close watch on yourself evaluate your heart motive, your heart's reflection as you engage in, in rebutting the ideals of proposed to you. We all know that, that we can be terribly deceptive for ourselves. We have a way of, of justifying our own behaviors, of, of reckoning our own selves righteous. That's right, that's why I go, I go look in the mirror and I walk away and step away. My wife says, you missed a little schmutz right there. I'm like, are you kidding me? I just saw, I just looked in the mirror, I was brushing my teeth. She's like, well, now I'm beginning to question how you brush your teeth. We need to keep a close watch on ourselves. And this is persistent, and this is unending. But we need to also live transparent lives in front of others. To where we both speak truth into other people's lives, we look at the Bible and reflect on it, and then we go to, to our friends and to our other people that we do church with, and we say, look, this is what I see in the Word of God, this is what I see in your life. And that happens when we engage in this complete process of transparency. 
And that's terrifying, right? It's terrifying to step in front of somebody else and say, can you look at my life? Look, I'm, I'm looking at my own life. I am keeping a close watch on myself. I am striving and struggling in speech and conduct and love, faith, and purity to do what I need to do. But would you look at my life and tell me, do you see these things in me? And that's terrifying to give somebody license to speak into your life, to be transparent, to be open, to be vulnerable enough to do that. But the gospel demands that we do that because our hearts are so prone to deceive us. We need to pray that as we are examining ourselves, that God would open up our hearts, that he would show us what our heart's true reflection is, and that he would bless us with friends who would step into our lives and would speak truth and offer honest evaluations of where we are at all times. He says, keep a close watch on yourself, keep a close watch on the teaching. Now, Timothy, as we've already addressed, is in a difficult situation. Paul's calling him to address a whole series of, of complaints that are not the easiest of things to engage in. He's stepping in and he's talking to to men that are older than him. He's stepping in and addressing relationships that he doesn't know, that he's unfamiliar with. And it's easier for him, and certainly better decision career-wise for him, to just, you know, kind of back into these situations, let people discover their own sin, let people discover their own inabilities, let them discover their own falsehoods. But he calls him to keep a close watch on his teaching. He's calling him as a minister of the Word of God to make sure that his teaching is consistently in line with what the Word says. And not just in line with what Timothy wishes it would say. He calls him day in and day out to keep a close watch on his teaching. And you kind of boil it down and you say, for what purpose? Paul calls him against his persist in this, continue in this. And all of these are commands. Continue in this because in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, how does that work? See, Paul wants Timothy to recognize that his ministry is a ministry of the Word of God. And as Paul writes in Romans 10, it is the Word of God which transforms. It is the Word of God which saves. But we read also in Romans that that you cannot be saved without the Word of God. Paul says, how will they call on Him who they have not believed? And how do they believe in Him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet are those who preach the good news. Paul calls on us to engage in a ministry of the Word of God. And his word to Timothy is, Timothy, as you find yourself faithful to the word of God, you are demonstrating your own salvation. You are showing that and giving evidence that God has worked in you for salvation, and that will continue until you die or Christ returns. He's saying, Timothy, this is what you do in preaching the word of God in exhorting the Word of God, in the public reading of Scripture and in teaching, this is what you do. You're putting this before the people. You're working to validate, in some sense, their salvation. 
See, when we reflect on verse 13, we see that Paul is calling Timothy into this labor until the return of Paul. There's no end in sight for Timothy's labors, and he is calling him to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. It's the ministry of the Word. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, continually read the Bible in front of this church. He calls Timothy to engage in the same behavior that Jesus had when he pulled out the scroll as a child and stood in the synagogue and read. Paul calls Timothy to a ministry of the Word. He says to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, he says, look, Timothy, take this reading and then take that and apply it to the situations that you find members of your flock in. You see somebody whose heart is breaking. You see somebody who's suffering in the workplace. You see a family who's dissolving. You see a husband who's neglecting his wife, a wife who's neglecting her husband. You take the Word of God and you apply that in exhortation. Exhortation is all about driving people to be found in faithfulness to the Word of God. It's not just mild encouragement. This is driving people continually putting it before them. Not just, hey, I'm just going to put this out there. You reflect on it, you think on it, and I'll come back to you in a month and we'll see how you're doing. It's continually calling people. And if you know a marriage that is self-destructing, you take the Word of God and you apply it. You call a family to find themselves in fidelity and in line with the Word of God. And then he says to teaching. You exhort people, you call them to be found in fidelity to the Word of God, but you teach them how to do that. You don't just call people to a higher model of, of faithfulness. You teach them how to be faithful. See, as Christians, we are all called up into this ministry of the Word of God. We recognize that God has given each of us a unique perspective. When you think about your workplace, you think about the people you come into contact with, and you ask yourself this question, who else in my church who else in my life group, who else in my family or friends that are Christians has access to these people? Man, how is God uniquely calling you? Man, you think of, of yourself as a student. Think of the classes you're in, and you think of the students in each one of those classes. You think about the people that, that know Jesus and the people that don't. Or maybe even the people that you're not aware of if they know Jesus or not. So let's just, for sake of arguments, to say those people do not know him. God calls each and every one of us, whatever season of life that you see yourself in, He's calling you to faithfulness in the dispensing of the Word of God. He's calling you to faithfulness as ministers of the Word of God, because that's what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to find yourself faithful in engaging in the Word of God by reading it, by calling other Christians into faithfulness of it, and by showing them how to get there. We need to be discipling one another. Let me pray for us.